Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I am Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing at product and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. Today, I am extraordinarily excited to uh, welcome back a longtime Pragmatic instructor, a longtime Pragmatic fan, current Senior Vice President of Customer Operations at HMH, and honestly, a really good friend of mine, Kirsten Butso. Hi, Kirsten. Rebecca, you can't, I don't know who's more excited, uh, you to be here or me to be here. Uh, it's really fantastic to get to come back uh, and hang out with my people and uh, talk about cool things, pragmatic-y, and I'm just very excited to get the opportunity to check in with you and visit today. Always good to chat. So we've got we've got a really interesting topic lined up today. Uh, well, first, though, let's talk a little bit about, why don't you give some context for our listeners, tell them a little bit about your role at HMH and what it is that you oversee there. Well, so let me talk a little bit about HMH, just so you have context there. So HMH is 150-year-old-ish. A publishing company. We're a billion dollar company. And um, the bulk of our business comes from K through 12 education, publishing and digital solutions in the United States. We're in 13,000 of the 14,000 school districts in the US. And we're the people who help children learn how to read, do math, social studies and science through the course of their um, education career. Uh, I run our, go ahead, oh, sorry. I was going to say, I could really use some help around here for uh, homeschooling during COVID. Uh. <laughs> um, I will tell you, as somebody who does have visibility into some of the current techniques uh, used by teachers today to teach those subjects, I don't think I'm much used to you because the way I learned math, for example, is uh, unidentifiable to me to the way that children learn math today. So uh, sorry, Rebecca. That is very true. I, I learned that the hard way this year, fifth grade math. Did me yeah, you you are basically on your own. So, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I run our customer operations organization and I get the honor of working with some really brilliant people. Uh, it's my group's responsibility to make sure that we are aligning needs uh, for the solutions that we're providing our customers, ensuring that our customers are uh, maximizing the usage of our products for the primary reason that when they use our products, we know that it drives student outcomes. So um, we are a double bottom line company in that um, not only do we strive to meet our revenue goals, but our real deep passion is to make sure that the, the products and the services that we provide are used in the marketplace such that we know that it's improving the outcomes of, of, of the students who are using those solutions. So I have a team uh, dedicated to doing that work and then I also have a digital solutions and a technical support group that's available to, to, like I say, make sure that there's air in the tires and gas in the tank and that we're available to answer questions and help our customers at any moment in time in their customer journey that they need that help. So that's great, Kristen. But as you know, this is a podcast for product management and product marketing. So talk to me about how, the, how why should my listeners not change the dial? Well, I'll tell you why they uh, shouldn't change the dial is because my area is very often one of the most ripe arenas for a product leader to gather market data. Um, I know we say nothing important happens in the office. 
And I know we want people to get into the market to identify market problems, but I know we also want to understand our segments and we under, we want to understand the populations within our segments, our customers, our evaluators, and our potentials. And when you think about that pie chart, my piece of the pie is customers. And I am a treasure trove of market data because there is nowhere else in the company that customers call all day, every day, and tell us where we're not doing it well and where we could do it better. And so when you think about the journey that my team uh, has exposure to from the perspective of the customer, it starts with it starts with my solution support group who really understands our customers' needs and ensuring that we align the solution that we're providing to the customer's needs. Well, if I were a product leader and I just heard what I said, I th would think to myself, man, I probably want to find the subject matter experts in my company who are helping align my product needs to the customer's needs during the sales cycle. Because if there seems to be a consistent pattern of misalignment there, or it seems like we're always trying to put a round peg in a square hole or things aren't going well in that conversation, maybe my product isn't hitting the mark. Maybe I haven't accurately identified the needs of my marketplace and built my product in a way that we have people who can easily articulate how those needs align during the solutions uh, sales cycle. And so that's a treasure trove of information. And that might seem on the back end, and it is, but it's a retrospective that gives you a window into that outward marketplace. Our customer success organization, they take over in that journey. And what they do in that journey is they really make sure that we ensure that our customers are using our products. And so if we've done our job correctly and we've really matched our customers' needs well and we have the right solution to address their needs, it makes our customer success managers' jobs a lot easier because now they can really focus conversations on how to maximize that usage of that product in order to maximize those student outcomes. And again, if we don't see that that's happening after the moment that that product has been consumed in the marketplace, I don't know about you, but if I were a product leader, that would be an awfully interesting data set for me. And then lastly, I would say this, every single self-respecting product leader on the face of the universe, um, and I'll say even as far as Mars now that we're flying helicopters around up there, <laughs> they should definitely know what the top contact drivers are in the contact center within their organization. There's no place else in the company where your customers call you all day, every day, and tell you where they're struggling and using their products. And if you don't know what your top contact center drivers are, you don't know the pain points that your customers are living all day, every day. And that is a pipeline of outside-in information coming into an organization and you have super smart partners over in that part of the business who would build you some amazing pie charts and tell you what they hear and see that you can incorporate into that balance when you start thinking about the next solution that you're going to be building for um, the products and services that you're building because you now know that you're really tackling that customer slice of the market segmentation pie. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here, right? Someone listening is going to go, those people who call, that's just the noisy 20%, right? It's all just, just wind and breeze. What would you say back? How do we find the gold in, 
in some of the calls and conversations? Well, what I'll say about this is that uh, if that's your perspective, you've already done yourself a disservice. And the reason is this, whatever you think is the reason somebody's calling probably isn't actually the reason that they're calling. Everybody sits around and um, forecasts what they believe are the issues or the primary things that need to be addressed with the product. And very often, when you dig into the data for why people call, you'll find super interesting things. For example, uh, we recently were able to identify in our customer success organization that we just uh, didn't see, we had a product where we just didn't seem like people were using it the way that we thought they should be, or we weren't getting the the magnitude of usage that um, we would have anticipated. And that pains us greatly because we know if kids aren't using that solution, they're not learning. And so one might think, um, uh, one might conjure up a lot of reasons why that might be. Maybe they don't like the feature functionality of the product, or maybe it's not usable, or I mean, who knows why? But it was as simple as when we dug into the data set, we realized that we had um, a training. Uh, backlog that we were working through fulfilling and the people who hadn't been using yet hadn't been trained yet. So there was zero product issue there. It was just about the process of getting people up and running and using that product. But if you don't take the time to understand the data and you don't take the time to understand, well, why is it that people are calling us? You're going to miss those golden opportunities. And this, the solution to the, the marketplace isn't always build more stuff. Sometimes the solution to solve a market problem is uh, a, a social engineering problem, a process problem, a services problem, um, a communication problem. And we just have this natural tendency when we're product leaders to wanna build stuff. That's what we do, we build stuff, let's just build stuff. and you know, sometimes the best answer to the solution isn't to build more stuff. It's to listen to what's driving the way people are really interacting with your products. And maybe the answer is as simple as doing some training sessions. And that, by the way, usually can be rolled out probably a lot more quickly and a lot, um, uh, a lot more inexpensively than laying a lot of lines of code to solve a problem that wasn't actually the problem in the first place. Think of all the, the frustration avoided, all the unnecessary work uh, by listening to that. So you've convinced me, skeptical product manager listening. Uh, so now talk to me about, as a product manager, what's the best way to engage with the customer operations group? What would you suggest? If, if this is new, this sort of partnership connection, what would you recommend? I think there's two things. First of all, I would try to identify who in your organization owns the customer journey um, as a subject matter expert during the sales cycle, not just the salesperson, but there's typically a sales engineer type role. Our, our, our folks are subject matter experts. They're all former math, reading, science, social studies, science teachers. Sit down with those folks and have them walk you through the process that they go through to identify the right solution to meet a particular customer's needs. So we have these kinds of customers. How do you identify the needs that the customer has and how do you align our solutions to those needs? Look where you have gaps. Look where you have kludgy things. I can promise you this. There's places where they're telling the story in an elegant way that isn't an, an that isn't an elegant solution. And maybe there's an opportunity for the story to match the solution. I would spend some time with your 
moving down that journey. So you're mapping the journey of, of uh, during the sales process. Where do your customers go next? They go to an implementation onboarding customer success organization. Find out who those people are, sit down with them and have them walk you through. What do you do? What do you see? What are the top drivers that you run into when people are trying to just turn on our stuff and use it? And when people use it really at high levels, why is that? When we don't see them using it at all, why is that? Understand that. And then I will tell you this. If you want to get um, somebody who's running a digital solutions technical support group super excited, ask them if they would share with you their top contacts and their drivers. They're waiting for that moment. They are dying for somebody to come along and show an interest in understanding why customers are calling and they have a treasure trove of information where they codify every call, they understand why people are calling and they would happily share that with you. If you wanna get them super excited, ask if you can sit in and listen to some calls. Ask if you can listen to some recordings of calls if you can't do it in real time. Nothing is um, more profound than to get the opportunity to sit and listen to a couple of hours worth of calls of your customers calling in and talking to you. And you will really get a sense of um, the impact that you're having on them with the solutions that you're building. And you'll also get a sense for where you might be creating pain. And so what I would say is just sort of map out that journey, find those people in the organization that run those parts of the business, and then just go spend a little bit of time with them. Because I know all that sounds inside out, but it's inside out that's a data source that's outside in. So very often we have to sometimes look to our inward outside in data sources in order to get the full picture versus just constantly being think, thinking we have to hit feet on the street to get out into the marketplace. There are places in the business where the marketplace, the outside in is actually coming straight to us. So we should tap into those as well. Absolutely. And I'm going to flip that a little bit on its head, right? So we talked a little bit about why PMs should, should talk to customer operations and sort of what they could get. What do you wish, uh, or not, you know, not saying they don't give it to you, but what is, what do you want as customer operations from product? What do you want that partnership to bring to you that would help you do your core role better? So I think, um, partnership was the operative word that you just used there. And I think of that very traditional loop in an agile drawing, right? So you've got the very traditional visual of a of waterfall where something's going, you know, box to box to box and stair stepping down. Everybody Google waterfall, click on images. You'll know what I'm talking about. Then Google agile, click on images, and you'll see the little loop-de-loop -loop circles going, you know, along your sprints. And what I think is this, those data sources can be embedded in your sprints. And the reason why that's critical is it's two things. First of all, I promise you this, the people who answer calls and technical support, if you include them in your requirements reviews, your use case reviews, your user story reviews, they will see things, they will recognize things, they will give you information that you will never recognize yourself because they talk to customers all day, every day. So you get an instantaneous data source of feedback loop to help with those reviews, bring them into that iterative process. They also are a really um, important partner because if you don't ready them correctly post launch, 
your solutions will fail in the marketplace. Nothing is worse than putting a solution in the marketplace that somebody in technical support hasn't been trained on and the call comes in and they can't help it, help the customer answer the questions because they didn't know that release was coming. And so on the other side of the house, right, we, we provide data, use us, help us, but then help us be ready to answer our customers by iterating with us and bringing us into that iterative process in your launch and release planning planning readiness so that we're all, always ready to service our customers. And so that loop has to really be across the entire organization, not just in one part of the organization. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I think, you know, we certainly see and talk to plenty of customers who struggle with uh, getting product and launch information to the marketing partners and the sales partners. And I actually think often customer support, customer operations is further down the line. Uh, and, and sometimes like the one no one thought was theirs to do. Uh, so I think it's super important when you're talking about product, arming them for success by giving them product information. So talk to me then, let's just go a little bit deeper on that one. What kind of things do you think as product managers we should bring? What's the most helpful uh, way to provide the information about the release or to do it? What are you looking from your product partners ideally in prepping your team for the launch? I mean, in the most ideal situation, um, the the organization would have a standard release readiness plan and release readiness nomenclature. And the entire organization would orient their actions based on the nature of a release. Not all releases are created equal. So the preparedness that takes place for a major release is going to be different for a minor or a maintenance or a hot fix release. So if we have clearly delineated what our release nomenclature is, our re- we can then ask the organization to orient in a very scalable way around that standard nomenclature. We would also ask that you consider your release planning to coincide not with how quickly you can build a solution, but when the market wants to consume the solutions that you're building. In some ways, one of the disservices that we've done with Agile in the industry is we have congratulated ourselves on how quickly we can build product. And we have deluded ourselves into thinking that that extends into um, our customers being impressed with how quickly we can put product into the marketplace. And I am here to tell you, and I hate to be the one to break the news, um, and it's a hard story I'm going to have to tell. Your customers do not care what your development methodology is. They actually don't care. They literally don't care. They are unimpressed with whether or not you are agile, you are waterfall, you are fragile, you are water scrum fall. They don't care. What they care about is this. Did you give me something that's going to impact my life in a positive way? And did you present it to me at a time in which I could digest it? And that's the only moment in which a release should take place is when it's impactful and when it's a time when your market can consume it. So just when you think about release planning, think about coordinating that throughout the organization, but don't forget your customers in the equation there. And then work together across the organization to make sure that everybody has the right information that they need at the right moment in time for their portion of the readiness. It's also why bringing those parts of the organization up into the agile work stream is really helpful because if they're iterating alongside you with all of those sprints and those releases, 
their readiness now takes a week versus three or four weeks because it's been an over the wall that now you've, you've agiled up to the release notes and then you've waterfalled. And so if you really want to get the, the full benefit of Agile, you've got to bring all parts of the business into that iteration process. And I'm not saying they have to be at every sprint review, but it may be every third or fourth, right? Whatever that right cadence is. Well, and the other point, by having them in, you'll get some extra visibility and extra eyes on when is the right time for your market. I, I'm, I'm confident with the scholastic market that you guys serve that there are really good and bad times. I worked in payment processing, Right. You do not touch code. You do not release anywhere near, you know, Black Friday starts and things like that. So it's an important perspective and it fundamentally changes how successful a release is considered is the customer state when they get it and their and their yeah. sort of everything else in the world. Is that the right time for them to consume? It's 100%. I can guarantee you um, a math teacher in the middle of the city, you know, in the middle of New York City, in the middle of the semester, does not want to walk in on a Tuesday morning to a major release with a brand new interface on the product she's been using all semester long. I guarantee this. So, you know, maybe we built it and we got it done really, really quickly. She doesn't care and she doesn't want it right then and she can't consume it right then. And actually we've caused her more harm than good at that point. So, you know, you really have to balance it. And that's not true for all functionality, right? There's some things that they she wants, like there's a there's a bug that hasn't been working and she's super happy to walk in and get that on a Tuesday morning or there's a minor nuisance and she's super happy to get that on a Tuesday morning. A completely new interface? Probably not. And so that's where that um, that's where that really kind of standard identification of your release nomenclature is really critical, because if you have clarity around your definition of the different types of things you're building, now the entire organization can put their rubrics in place to stack up against that as well. The other interesting thing that you've been talking about, I think is is agile, but not agile in the development cycle. There's a part of that, but in trying to bring the whole organization into thinking agilely and being agilely, that's a good word, uh, and, bring, and being part of that process. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how that that that's happened at HMH and, and kind of the advantages of, of no longer thinking of Agile as a development process, but more of it as a business approach and business process? Yeah, I like to say that Agile is a lifestyle. <laughs> it is not a development methodology. I mean, it is a development methodology, right? But Agile really is a lifestyle. And the interesting thing to me is we all live Agile. All of us, our, our entire lives, right? Like I'm in a house, I live in my home. I have things I wanna do at my house. I'm not doing them all at once, right? And we're doing something simultaneously together, right? Um, we're gonna get the exterior of the house painted and we're gonna do that at the same time that we do some work in the interior of the house, but we're not gonna do that at the same time that we get a new roof. And so this is what we are thinking about is what is the work that you're doing? What can you do together? What can you do sequentially? When should you do the things? When does your budget allow for it? When does your market allow for it? And so um, as we think about it, um, what I, if you, you could, I can promise you this. We converted my entire organization. So I have 300 plus people on my team and we spent 2020, uh, un, 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 we, we didn't know 
how fortuitous it was going to be when we started on the journey. But at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, we begun, began the process of converting that entire organization to function in an agile way, an agile methodology. And what I, if you ask anybody on my team, what is Kirsten's favorite number? They will tell you three. And I always say, we're going to operate in three by 90. And we're going to orient our work using the agile methodology of themes, uh, epics, and sagas around a three by 90 time frame, a rolling three by 90 time frame. So at the start of 2020, we said, what are our strategic themes for the year? What are those high level strategic um, goals that we need to meet for the year? Those were our themes. And then we said, great. What is our um, nine? What are the 90 day sagas that we're going to, excuse me, what are the 90 day epics that we're going to have that are going to enable us to fulfill those themes? And then every 30 days, what are the sagas that we're going to deliver that enable the 90 day epics that enable the 12 month strategic themes? So we had 12 months of strategic themes. We had 90 days of epics and we had 30 days of sagas that were going to fulfill those epics. And in the 30 days, we said, you know, what can we do? Think of threes. What three things can you do in 30 days? What three things can you do in 90 days? So everything was operating on a three by my model, three by 30, three by 90. And then it was going to be 12 at the end of the year, right? Because you do three times four. So, all right. So we got... And that's what I basically said. And I said, if we're lucky, we get a baker's dozen. We'll do 13 things at the end of the year. But if we get 12 done, we should feel really great about that as an organization. So we oriented our work this way versus having big plans thought out through the entire year. We just said, we're going in a general direction. And in these chunks of time, we're going to do some stuff. And if we do the stuff in these chunks of time, we can feel really good that at the end of the year, we will have completed the general direction that we set out for ourselves. Now, this was really hard for folks. And it was hard for folks in particular because we tend to be a very analytical organization who wants to have metaphysical certitude around everything before we make a decision. And I kept telling people, you know what? Here's the thing. You could take an extra six months and we could have a lot more data and we could make a more informed decision. But you know what? We're still going to be wrong because no matter what we do, something's not going to be right about it. I'd rather we do the best we can with what we have for the next 30 days. Get that done in fulfillment of our 90 days objectives in target of this theme. Be wrong. Let's be wrong in 30 days. Let's be wrong in 90 days. Let's not wait and be wrong in six months. Let's let's be wrong as fast as we can. And as soon as we gave people that freedom, it changed everything. Because they basically said, wait a second, you mean I can do the best I can with the information I have available to me right now, and I can be wrong, and I can fail, and I'm not going to get in trouble for that? And I'm like, that's exactly right. As a matter of fact, we'll have a party, because we're going to learn 10 times more from the things where we didn't do it right, than everything that comes out exactly the way that we prognosticated. So we're gonna celebrate the failures, probably even greater than the successes, right? So we made that pivot and we made that shift and we spent um, January 
and February, building that muscle memory. And then March hit in 2020. <laughs> and COVID, right? And the coolest thing that happened with that was because of how we had organized, because we how we had oriented around the standard agile nomenclature of themes, epics, and sagas, we could pivot quickly on the underlying work. And we ended the year in fulfillment of all of the strategic themes we set out. But the way that we got there was nowhere near how we had envisioned when we started setting out those 30, 90 day plans. But because we had freed ourselves to operate in such a, a rapid fluid way, we pivoted so quickly in our responses to things it was incredible. And when we sat back at the end of the year, there was really virtually no change in the strategic themes that we set out at the start of the year. And that was really um, heartwarming because we realized we actually knew what we were doing when we set out those themes, that they were the right themes to do. And we now are a super empowered team that knows that we can adjust and flex any way, any time, any how we want to and need to, but still meet our strategic objectives. And so it's been a really fantastic exercise. And I, I, I think it's the only way to operate, just me personally. One of the things that I think is, is really important about that too, right? That agile mindset there is not only did it, it provide them the, the sort of structure for the mechanics to change, which is one part of being able to pivot. But what I think it also provides is the emotional freedom to switch, right? When you lay out your 12 month plan, even if you shift it, you feel like you failed in a way, because that's not how you mentally were prepared and all of your mental, like, like there's a big emotional aspect to that, that when you're planning and more agile, people are just like, okay, we're still going here. That, like you said, the top level isn't changing. And the fact that the, the lower level is, is not a problem. And I don't have some of that strength, that same sort of emotional friction to those changes. Uh, that can be really hard uh, when you're talking about change management and change curves to go with. So I think that 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 two play makes it so powerful. No, it's it's you know um, trust. We have um, we have our we call it our stand, and it's our um, I don't remember. I think there's six guiding pillars that we have as an organization that we follow. But the two pillar pillars that I really lead with with my team is trust and ownership and um, trust that we trust you to do the best you can with the best information you have available at the time. And then we trust you to own your work and own your job. And you're going to be right sometimes and you're going to be wrong sometimes. And we like both outcomes. And we're going to learn from both outcomes. And what's really amazing is, let me give you an example of that. Um, I have a, a leader within my customer success organization. And recently, she challenged everyone on her team to solve a problem that they recognized in the business. And so they went away. And then they came. We played. It was, it was we, they did a, a, a super fun play when they presented to me. Um, and their leader, um, it was Shark Tank and everybody won though. So we weren't, it wasn't like that. It wasn't harsh. And they all came forward and presented, here's the problem identified and here's the solution that I have created. N not a single manager, not a single leader told them 
what the problem was, what the solution was. None of us. They identified the problem, they created the solution, and then they came and presented to executive leadership what they um, had solved for. And it was incredible. Um, and every single one of those ideas, every single one of those solutions that they created, we're implementing all of them, all of them. And I sat back and I looked at that team and I said, this is what we talk about when we mean being agile and we talk about trust and ownership, because there is no way that I, you know, would have ever even known what your day-to-day -day problems are more or less, like if you guys were relying on me to identify your problem and tell you what to do to solve for it, we'd have all been waiting a really long time. I can't, you know, your job is better than I could ever possibly know your jobs. And having you just doing stuff and fixing stuff is exactly the way we want to operate. And so it's just setting that, that um, set, it's just free. To, it's very freeing when, when you do that. And I mean, we, I, I told them, you guys just exceed expectations I didn't even know I had um, because you're doing, you're solving problems um, and it's incredible. And so when you, when you free people to do the work that way and you give them um, a flexible construct to do it, really remarkable things can happen. That's awesome. I love it. And as always, I, I love the leadership style that you have where you uh, you empower others. And then you also, you know, your enthusiasm, it, you bring it, you bring it to the people and their ideas. And I think that that's so validating for them. And so uh, it's such a difference when you do that for them to come up the next time with something, maybe, you know, not needing the structure of that chart tank to be able to present forward problems and solutions because you've, you've given them the structure, you've rewarded them. They've seen how it worked and now they're, they're like charged to go through. And I always think that's great. No, because their presentations are now going to go to the executive leadership team, right? So it's going to the top highest levels in the organization. Also, I will say it was a little freaky to see my head um, photoshopped onto Barbara Corcoran. <laughs> Barbara Corcoran, they made me, which I was happy they made me her. Right. Um, I mean, that, that seems like a good like choice. <laughs> Mr. Wonderful for the Shark Tank because she seems nice. She seems like one of the nicer sharks. So I, I really was grateful that they didn't make me like Mark Cuban or Mr. Wonderful. So that was <laughs> nice. Awesome. All right. Oh, we've covered so much ground, Kirsten. Uh, give me two things. You know, I love this question. Uh, what two things do you want people to do differently tomorrow based on some of the stuff that we talked about today? Uh, stop overthinking. Flex. Be ready to flex. Be ready. Be relaxed. Mistakes are going to happen. Things are going to go awry. Uh, there will be unanticipated consequences for things that you do. You know, seize that as an opportunity versus I, I just don't be punitive, basically. Yep. Yep. That's where the great things happen. Awesome. All right, Kirsten, it was a absolute pleasure as always to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that does it for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. <laughs>